Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's the text half hour, would you believe it? Text publishing, two authors, even a publicist sitting in the corner. Welcome, Jane. (laughs) But here we go. History can be a novelist's playground, but the line between fact and fiction provides a conundrum. What truth is being revealed? Now, Jock Sarong, in his latest work, Preservation, plays this line in his novel that uses the wreck of the Sydney Cove back in 1797 as its foundation. So, Jock, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. What can you tell us about the Sydney Cove? It's a part of Australia's history that is sort of overlooked. It's amazing. It seems too good a tale not to have been more prominent. But the Sydney Cove was originally a banged-up coastal trader called the Begum Shore, which worked the ports of India in the late 1700s. And it was bought by a company and filled with grog and sent to Sydney. Um, under the vanity name Sydney Cove in an effort to get them to buy the booze that was aboard. Well, it, yeah, it raises some fascinating questions, but you've used your knowledge of the sea and ships and you live in Portland, was it? Uh, Port Ferry. Port Ferry, yeah. that's right. So you, you love the sea, but here we go. My watching, which had begun in general interest, became focused upon this one ship. They had it empty at first, floating high at the wharf, and they rigged a block and tackle over the foremost yard so they could lower a great smoking ball of yellow brimstone into the hull cavity. The smoke seeped out the hatches, and here and there it would find a crooked seam or a split timber, and a party would scurry to place to the place to apply tar. I find that fascinating, that that intimate knowledge of seacraft. That in particular came from reading a book about scurvy, and it was one of the various guesses that people made about how to prevent scurvy on ships was to burn brimstone in the hull and sort of fumigate it. Um, I was reading this book on a family road trip, and I uh, kept terrifying the kids with this notion that if they didn't eat their fruit, they'd all get scurvy. Um, but that's yeah, that's where the brimstone came from. But just that knowledge of brimstone, I didn't realise that was what brimstone could be used for. Yeah, like. that, and of course, it does identify the gaps because it seeps yeah, out, it seeps out, and and such like. <clears throat> but here we go. This raises the question of the motivations and interests of those involved. So here we have what is a relatively unseaworthy craft for coastal transport in India out of Calcutta, but they load it up with rum and send it to Australia. And this is where the novelist's interpretation sort of starts to come to the fore. Yeah, well, well, that premise raises a really, really interesting um, potential for a story, which is that um, it's a speculative voyage. So Sydney doesn't know they're coming. And when they eventually run aground in what we know to be Bass Strait, it wasn't on their charts, they are in a situation where Calcutta doesn't know they didn't get there, Sydney doesn't know they're coming, and they've sailed off the map. So it's this perfect storm of confusion. But we've also got this division between history and sort of the novelist's craft because you're looking at then at the motivations uh, and the psychology of those involved and why the hell they would go on this speculative venture. What were the motivations of these, these people? Now, can a novelist do that? Well, I think it's really interesting that there are many shades of what we would call historical fiction. There's a number of different models you can adopt. And in my case, the idea was that there was 
a so-called true historical interpretation and a whole lot of gaps in there that just didn't make sense. So, for instance, of the three people who ultimately survived this walk through the bush, one of them kept a diary. But the three were three of 17, and the guy who kept the diary doesn't explain what happened to the other 14. There are what I think of as pillars of documented so-called truth, and then the gaps. And and the novelist's um, position in this is to write into the gaps and, if if possible, leave those pillars standing. And we imagine then Australia's history, what was involved, because the Sydney Cove is one thing, but... They were shipwrecked in uncharted territory. Bass Strait hadn't been found at that stage. Longboat gets to uh, the 90-mile beach. That is wrecked. Um, the travelling up the coast, walking, and this is what forms the backbone of your novel, the structure of this story... And then one of the rescue ships gets wrecked as well. So we've got yeah. a litany of wrecks involved in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, as poor old Clark says at one stage, I've been shipwrecked twice in a week. <laughs> and um, it, it's so interesting to me because you've got 17 people walking through the bush and they're walking south to north through two Aboriginal nations and, in fact, a total of probably eight separate tribes, different language groups, and there's... Again, I'm, I'm interpolating into a gap, but there's no evidence that Aboriginal people themselves travelled in that linear way up the coast. So if you try to imagine their perspective on these walkers, why on earth are these men staggering from south to north and what are they trying to do? And this is the fascinating thing because there would have been a lot of research involved here. But also then, this encounter with the Indigenous population, it would have been one of the first uh, European uh, transactions of this nature... Um, to take place, because we're looking at 1797, aren't we? Uh, Before Bass Strait was discovered, before the explorers had started to go in, but there were discoveries along the way as well that uh, Clark and the others were making. We'll get into the characters later. Coal and all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a thing that's easily overlooked because we tend to be told in school that first contact was made between British soldiers and the Eora close in around Sydney. But in fact, this is an instance of first contact between at least 14 Indian people These are Bengalis um, and a handful of Scotsmen um, with tribes on the south coast. Um, And so everything about the incident, when when the survivors arrive in Sydney and they're trying to explain what happened to them, not only are they lying to some extent, but everybody is trying to place an understandable sort of European Judeo-Christian explanation on the unknown. And, and a narrative around it, which is where the novelist comes in, because that's what the novelist can do. But that journey then forms the backbone of your narrative in terms of from the wreck and up. But also then you're looking backwards on it in some ways because you've got a series of accounts here uh, of people trying to look at the events to interview the characters that we Uh, have. So that's an interesting sort of structure that you've imposed on it. So one of the characters that I have completely invented is this guy called Lieutenant Joshua Grayling, and he's sent in sort of as the investigator to ask these three bedraggled survivors what happened out there. 
and the three of them immediately start telling different stories. Um, so yes, you're looking backwards at the walk then from these guys recovering in Sydney. And you get a range of perspectives because we've got, as you say, Grayling sort of investigating. He's the detective, for want of a better word. We've got Mr William Clark, and you've portrayed him as a sort of... Um, what would you dissolute? Uh, he's lost the family fortune and you've given him a motivation for setting sail. Yeah, so, so to delve right into the ethics of writing historical fiction, I've taken the skeleton of what we know about William Clark, which isn't much, and I have portrayed him as a gambler and a coward and something of a hypocrite. There is no evidence that he was any of those things, but nor is there any evidence that he wasn't. Hmm. Well, what motivation would one have for filling an unseaworthy ship with rum and going to Sydney without letting anybody know? (laughs) And and why why would one write a diary of a trek on which you've lost 14 of your companions and not explain where they went? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's odd, that sort of psychology. You have Mr Fig... Yes, Mr. Fig is a kind of Lucifer figure, and um, I had read on the way through writing this book, I read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, in which he has this terrifying character called Judge Holden, and before that I'd read The North Water, which has a guy called Henry Drax, and what they share in common is that they're kind of devil figures who appear in a human endeavour, they don't appear to age, they don't feel pain or hunger or thirst, and at the end of the adventure, so to speak. They disappear again, and they seem to then float into someone else's mayhem. And um, it's funny, since writing the book, I've started reading Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, and in it, he has this character called Professor Woland, who is exactly the same Lucifer figure coming to Moscow in the 40s. Um, And again, he appears, causes mayhem, and disappears. It's it's an archetype. But also the archetype may not necessarily be a person, but this commercial... (laughs) nature, people wanting to make profit, which is destroying things along the way as well. Yes, and if you want to look at three perspectives on the colonisation of Australia, you've got um, Srinivas, the Bengali boy, who is innocent and wide-eyed and very observant. But the interesting thing here is, so Srinivas was uh, Alaska, uh, he was an attendant to Clark, um, but he's a voice that they would have ignored. Yes, yeah. In, in fact, didn't even know that he had a tale to tell until... Or could speak English. Or could speak English, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, they could talk openly in front of him because they ignored him like a servant. And that, that European arrogance. Yes, all of these things are driving at the same idea, which is that people were so caught up in their own European attitude to what they were doing that they were missing the vital clues that were right in front of them. And you've also got Charlotte, which I find another interesting voice, um, because it's the fem- feminine perspective. Well, with Charlotte, there's a practical problem to address from the very start, which is that I'm telling a story about 55 men on a boat, and um, at some stage you've got to break that up or it's just going to become monotonous. And I wanted Charlotte in there because it seems to me that there is a general approach to that early colonial history, which is that you have the convict prostitute at one end of the spectrum, and you have Elizabeth MacArthur at the other end of the spectrum, and that there's a giant gulf in between where nobody's really writing about ordinary women. Now, the interesting thing here is that um, Charlotte is um, medically um, compromised. She has a a parasite um, eating into her um, and basically the dangers of settling in a new land, not knowing what's going to happen. But that's almost like an image of being destroyed by the 
country, the way it's... Yes, there's a parasite attached to the walking party, there's a parasite attached to Charlotte, and there's some wider thing going on about us attached to the continent. Yeah. <laughs> he's in there somewhere. And But, uh, you see, this is where Fig comes in as well. He's he's seen as a, a parasite, but the, there was a line there that about, well, the host still has value in it if the parasite sees can can attack, so to speak. Um, but yeah, that that whole notion of of surviving in a new land is there. You've got the image then of the shipwreck in the Ferno Group, and Bass Strait hasn't been discovered at this stage, and so it's almost like going into uncharted territory. Yes, and Fig early on observes he's standing on the boulders on this desolate island in the Ferno Group, and he observes that the wind's blowing west and that there's chop, but that there's also swell going past him. And, and this is, in fact, how people worked this out early on, that that swell is coming from somewhere. It's, this is not an embayment. It's not a river mouth. Um, and then that's when they figured out it must be open to the west. So shortly after these survivors got to Sydney, the first person who latched onto them was Flinders, and, and Flinders and Bass then went off and made the discovery they made. What that led to was um, the discovery of sealing, the discovery of coal, and these huge industries came out of there, and it became this kind of lawless society over the next 20 or 30 years. And the other thing, uh, the other image there, Clark has had both his hands pierced, and was it Thompson that had his side pierced yes. by a spear? And you're getting into some sort of religious imagery. Yes, here. and there's 12 Lascars and their charismatic <laughs> leader. There's <laughs> all these little... And so you have played on that, but that actually happened, the, yes. the spearing. Yes, it did. So yeah. you're playing and toying with this notion of, well religion, sacrifice and all of these sorts of things. Yeah, it, it seemed to me, and, and I, I stress I'm not the first to observe this, but it seems to me that the um, European interpretation of those wounds would have been stigmata. Mm. Uh, I think it's fair to say, given um, the skill of Aboriginal people with weaponry, that there's no way these two wounds were an accident. So there's some sort of message in them, but as to what it is, it is... Well, a punishment or, you know, there were tribal rituals, there were punishments, there were all sorts of things. So they got themselves into some sort of trouble but our interpretation of it and it sort of becomes an existential question now unfortunately we're going to have to end the interview jan's just sort of realized that time actually flies but jock there's so much more we could talk about the aboriginal culture the interaction with the indigenous the european perspective and all of those sorts of things so you'll have to write another book and come back again. I'd the book to. is Preservation, which is the name of the island on which the rum got it stored, is. and they had to go and rescue the rum as well as the survivors. The author is Jock Sarong, and it's a text publishing release. Thank you, Jock. David, thanks heaps. Well, Jock Sarong's been here a few times to publish it or not, but Catherine Collette, this is your first time. Welcome, Catherine. Well, thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me. Well, now, some employment requires high-functioning mathematical skills with calculations needing to be made about risk. So working for an insurance company would be a good fit for your character, Jermaine Johnson. <laughs> That's true. So uh, Jermaine is the main character in my book, The Helpline. She is a woman who is really, really good with numbers, but not amazing with people. Not too good with promotion. She's been working for the insurance company for 17 years. She wants to be promoted, and, and it looks like management, well, they know that she's not too flash at this. <laughs> and um, because, well, why? 
She, I guess the thing about Jermaine is she is desperate for external accolades. She really, really wants to be a team leader. But the problem is, A, not great with people. B, even though I say she's good with numbers, she's also probably not that great with numbers. So <laughs> numbers so, are her strong suit, but she's not a genius at the same time. After she sort of uh, indicates there was an incident and it certainly was that she, um, but she, it's not her fault. No, never her <laughs> fault. Um, she finds herself out of that job. So who finds her the next job? So she has a, a cousin, Kimberly. She's not a huge fan of Kimberly's, but uh, things aren't looking too good for Jermaine. She's applied for a lot of jobs. She hasn't had much success. So when... Because she can tell them that she could do the job better than they can virtually. <laughs> um, so when Kimberly calls and says, hey, I know the mayor at the local council. I, I could mm. <laughs> I could get you a job there. Uh, Jermaine... It's sort of lukewarm, but she ends up taking a position on a telephone helpline for senior citizens. So she has a shared office with Eva, who at the very first meeting gives her some wrong advice about biscuits. She does. She gives her a bit of a bum steer. So uh, on Jermaine's second day, Eva produces three quite large jars and says that uh, the it's Biscuit Tuesday, basically. So... Um, the biscuit barrels in the upstairs kitchen have been filled with biscuits and it's Jermaine's job to fill the jars uh, that Eva has produced with biscuits. But, of course... Uh, First of all, when she's siphoning off all the biscuits, not the two cream and the eight dry that she's allowed, you know, every day, <laughs> she meets some other workers there. She does. So uh, Ralph, the, the health and safety officer, intervenes, discovers... <laughs> because... <laughs> she's, she's not using tongs. <laughs> That's right. So she finds, having filled the jars with biscuits, she's asked to put the, the biscuits back into the larger barrels and it's discovered she didn't use the tongs. Oh. So she has to keep the biscuits. And then, then there's Jack from IT. There is. So Jack uh, works in the IT department. He is a man who wears shorts exclusively, which Jermaine is horrified by. And, and instantly goes to research, you know, how you lose body heat more out of your feet, <laughs> your head or your knees. That's right. Jo Jack claims that you only lose 10% of your body heat via your legs. Mm, so mm, pants. So, and if it's percentages, she's <laughs> onto it. Um, now, of course, this leads to all the complimentary biscuits being taken off the <laughs> out of the work uh, the area com completely, but Jermaine doesn't see it as her fault. She sort of blames others for that. So what really is her job there on the helpline? So she answers the telephone, basically, when um, senior citizens in the community call up and say they need help with, you know, gutters. meals on wheels or gutters cleaned and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's James who often rings about his pension payments, but there's Celia. Now, why does Celia ring? <laughs> Celia is president of the local senior citizens club, and she has a bit of a bee in her bonnet because the golf club next door to the senior centre have been using their car park. Mm. Yeah. Now, the mayor actually asks uh, Jermaine to come and have coffee with her and introduces her to a... A very well-presented man called Don. But this is very confusing to Jermaine because she knows 
Don as a completely different person. That's right. It's a bit of a mystery as to who Don really is. When Jermaine meets Don, uh, she he is both a friend of the mayor and also owns the golf club that has been using the Senior Citizen Centre car park. So the mayor has asked Jermaine to investigate a feud that's been happening around this car park. And Jermaine, you know, really wants to impress the mayor, really likes Don, but there's always this bit of mystery about who Don really is. Don looks a lot like Alan Cosgrove. That's right. And Alan Cosgrove is a uh, disgraced former Sudoku champion. Sudoku champion. That's right. Mm. Uh, Jermaine is a huge fan of Sudoku. She's always been very into Sudoku. And she's actually met Alan slash Don previously at a Sudoku convention. She has a bit of a crush on him. She does. He said to her uh, that she was wearing a very impressive shirt. And he did not have to say that. (laughs) So when Don slash Alan leaves, gone, a quote from the book, disappeared, leaving me feeling like the remainder in a long division equation. I didn't show it. If there's one thing I'm good at, it's hiding feelings. Most people don't know I have them. So this is poor Germaine. So uh, the mayor actually asked Germaine to go in and just investigate what's happening at the senior citizens and see what she can find out about Celia. That's right. And that's probably when things start to get a bit complicated. Uh, Jermaine's always been someone who's been very ambitious, but pretty alone. And uh, it's a bit unfortunate that she actually starts to make friends at the Senior Citizen Centre. Well, um, she finds herself doing some amazing things like chair aerobics. And, uh, yes. and she even re-meets her um, Jinjin, a Japanese girl, a neighbour of hers. And let's let's just hear a little bit about For sure. a meeting between Jinjin and Jermaine. So this is at uh, the Senior Citizen Centre that are running a homework club. Hi, Jinjin, I said, still standing. Are you here for homework club? They asked me to come down and tutor people in mathematics. Are you good at mathematics? I'd want to be, given I studied it for five years. Great, she said. I need some help, please. I cursed myself and contemplated the empty seat. How annoying. Here I was, making a voluntary contribution to the betterment of society, and Jinjin was going to be the beneficiary. I'd have preferred to help someone more deserving, underprivileged but obviously intelligent, a child preferably, with untapped genius that only I was able to unlock. (laughs) Yeah, once again, that whole ability. You know, she wants to be uh, seen as the great saviour, and she's never going to be. So with all the activities she's, uh, she's doing, Jermaine can't see that she's actually making all these new friends. And she also can't see that she's being manipulated by Verity and Don to get her to close down the Senior mm. Citizens Club, even though Jack warns her, be careful, that mayor could be self-interested. Now, uh, but for herself, she may be interested in Jack. Jermaine calls this subjective attractiveness. How does she prove it? <laughs> she, she well, she she realizes that a person's attractiveness can fluctuate over time. So she plots the different um, times that she's met Jack and determines his subjective attractiveness, and it appears to be tracking upward. This isn't the only thing that she graphs or does pie charts over. She she's very keen to get everything. 
out down there in numbers. She is. She's someone who sees the world in, in not in black and white, but in binary. Okay. <laughs> Look, all through the book, you know, there's little footnotes that, that you use to uh, explain or um, that she needs to explain to just what's going on in life. Let's give an example of one of those footnotes. <laughs> now, this, remember, she's working at the Senior Citizens Helpline. I'd stopped saying Senior Citizens Helpline and was just saying Helpline. One day I might even reduce it to help. It was a small efficiency, but a couple of words here and there, and that's 10 seconds. 10 seconds times 100 calls is 1,000 seconds, or 16.67 minutes. <laughs> See, she's very thorough. Look, through the book, there's some wonderful comedic writing. You know, how um, Germaine would redecorate her own office and anything involving her mother, Sharon. Can you remember, what did she give Sharon for a birthday? I love oh, this. Six vegan cupcakes and a book on financial planning for people in their 50s and 60s. Because she didn't want to have to cope with her mother when she had dementia and she, you know, she, she yeah, couldn't no support way. herself. <laughs> and then there was uh, something together they did, which was rehousing all the goldfish at a wedding. That The goldfish were being used as... Uh, as table, table decorations. decorations. <laughs> In a wedding. Oh. And the climax. You just knew right from halfway through the book it was going to be at the Merrill Ball. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, loneliness at night, we talk about the Sudoku's and we get an aspect. And so there's competing against the comedic. There's also, quote, loneliness at night. That's the time for a level five Sudoku. Somehow the empty squares on the page made the empty spaces in the house less obvious. Oh, that's a bit sad. <laughs> and we should get that last word of advice from Germaine from page 125. From page 125. Relationships between numbers are much simpler than relationships between people, I told her. People are unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. You never know what they're going to say. But numbers, numbers are reliable. Oh, what a pity. Thankfully, she gives, <laughs> a, gives people a real go. Now... This this book, the helpline, uh, with by Catherine Collette. It's just it's it's lovely. It's fresh. Oh, it's you, lots Jen. of laughs. Debut novel, and you've got a lot of interest in it. Yeah, I've been really really lucky. Um, I guess you sit down and write and assume that the only people that will ever read what you write will be your parents and your husband. <laughs> um, but not only is the book coming out here, it's coming out in the States and Canada and the UK and Italy as well. So was that done through your agent? It was done through text publishing, actually. So they had Carriage of the World Rights and they took it to the London Book Fair earlier this year and that's when... It was a very cool process of uh, there was bidding happening in the States, but because um, because of the time delay, uh, it was happening at night. So I would go to bed and sort of wake up in the morning and find out what had unraveled. And it was meant to be very quick, but it went for sort of three or four days. Okay, so it was well, great. I didn't sleep much, but it was absolutely. good. Absolutely. <laughs> Exciting times. Well, let's take one step back now. How did you get it to text? I got it to text through an agent. So I was, um, I'm with Jacinta Damase, who's an agent based in Melbourne. Uh, that's an interesting story in itself. Uh, she had originally rejected the manuscript, 
but through a manuscript development program, we got into a situation where we had to meet just the two of us for half an hour and she had to reread a portion of the manuscript and she changed her mind. Oh, well, for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Including it's good. Text, it was yes. a meeting I was dreading, so it was a very good outcome. <laughs> Golly, and of course there's... Uh, helplines have nothing to do with your professional <laughs> other in, other interests, and so it comes to that next novel, and it's going to be so hard, isn't it? Well, is yes, it? I'm an engineer. I work in uh, sewage planning, so I work in areas that are on septic systems, and I yeah. come in and say we're going to connect you all to sewer, and this is where it's going to go. Um, I work for a water corporation, so. I mean, you either work in water or sewer. We, we call sewer the dark side. That's, that's what <laughs> so, I mean. That's something bigger than local, local council. So hopefully maybe yeah, we'll, we'll see Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I think, um, yeah, there's a book about sewerage. I'm not sure if I'm the one to write it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed Catherine Collette's book, The Helpline, also by text. And you text, must go out Jane. and read Jock Sarong's Preservation, which gives an interesting insight into Australia or a part of Australia's early history. And that takes us out for another week. It does, it does. We Next better make week. way more for ruminations. Books. More books. More books.